If you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. So the passage that we'll be reading today, together today is from Ephesians chapter 4, from verses 1 to 16. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the wonder of your wisdom that is so powerfully displayed in the gospel and that, Lord, becomes manifest within the body of your people, the church. Lord, the scripture teaches us that you have planned this whole picture of redemption, the whole work of your redeeming a people for yourself and making, Lord, out of every tribe and tongue and people, a church that would be the bride of Christ. And this was done to reveal the glory of God. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you may open our eyes, that we may see things in your word that make us worship you and that bring us, Lord, to a better understanding of your church and a better understanding of our role in the church and also a clearer understanding of how you would have Christ's church to be ruled on earth. Lord, we give you thanks that you have given us your word and in your word we have the mind of Christ. And as we look at your word, Lord, you guide us and teach us and equip us for every good work, for the building up of the body to glorify you. And so we ask and I pray that you may empower me by your spirit to give your people your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The past two Sundays and for the next couple more Sundays, we have been looking at a topical series on the church. And this is four or five sermons, but really it's only one sermon. One sermon in which we are looking at how do we honor God 
within the local church. And this has many manifestations. We first began by looking at our, our biblical understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Last week, we looked at church membership. And today, we are going to consider congregational church government. How is the church to be governed according to the scriptures? Now, this is a dangerous area because when we bring up government, we're getting into the area where there has been tremendous conflict and disagreement all through the centuries. In fact, Otto van Bismarck, the first German chancellor, once said that governments are like sausages. If you want to keep any respect for them, don't watch how they're made. This certainly seems true for national governments, and history has shown that instituting governance in the church hasn't been a lot better. In our anti-authoritarian age, some people ask, well, does church governance really matter? As long as the lights turn on and the heat is on and the doors are open on Sunday, does it really matter how we organize ourselves within the church? On the other hand, there's others that say church governance matters so much and we're doing it wrong. And we need to import management practices and all kinds of pragmatic considerations and methodologies in order to better reach our present culture. They contend that in order to reach millennials or uh, unchurched people or whomever, we need slick leadership practices that are imported from the world of business. And so there's a whole church growth movement and there's church growth gurus that, that have introduced countless strategies to alter the leadership and alter the structure of authority within the church according to some pragmatic dictate that if it works, it must be right. So amidst this noise of all these conflicting voices today, we want to ask, what does the Bible say? And the starting point for this sermon is this, that Jesus has promised to build his church. In Matthew chapter 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And so, because Christ is building his church, we don't need to invent any of the governance structures for the church. We don't need to invent new secular management theories or cater to contemporary pragmatic considerations, we have a pattern in the word of God for how the Lord of the church has designed his church to be ruled and to be governed. And the word of God is sufficient to equip the people of God individually and corporately in such a way that we are built up to honor and please him for every good work. And so therefore, based on this presupposition that Christ is building his church, our responsibility in this age and in every other age is not to invent anything new, but to uncover and obey the pattern that has been given to us in Scripture. And so in this sermon, I will attempt to convey by the grace of God and his help what our church is convinced of in Scripture according to what the Scripture teaches on church governance. And, and I will attempt to also bring the scripture to bear on those convictions. Now, to begin, it's very important to be clear about our understanding of governance. And it's important to understand the distinction between governance and leadership. This is crucial for correctly understanding what the Bible teaches. Government is the system person or people that possess authoritative control to regulate the institution being governed. That's 
governance. The key word is authoritative power. Leadership, on the other hand, is just those who direct, direct, guide, and oversee the ones being led. So while leadership indeed has authority, it's not ultimately always the seat of authoritative power. Leaders may make decisions, they may exercise authority as they make decisions, but they do not necessarily possess authoritative power. And that might seem a little strange, like what's, what's the big deal? Like what's the difference between governance and leadership? But actually, if you think about it, as Canadians, we are well equipped to understand this. Because if you think about our government, who is ultimately the seat of authoritative power in our government? It's the Queen of England, right? As a constitutional monarchy, our Prime Minister is the head of, is the, head of the, the Parliament, and the Queen is the head of the state. And so she has to give royal assent before any bill can be made law. Before a new session of Parliament starts, there is the speech from the throne, the throne speech, where the, the Queen or her delegate, the Governor General, officially begins that session of Parliament. And so, although the Prime Minister provides oversight and leadership and decision-making on behalf of the country, it is ultimately the Queen who possesses the authority to dissolve the government, to install new governments, to prorogue Parliament, that is, to cancel the Parliament, and to turn bills that the government propose into laws that are binding. Prime Minister can't make a law that is binding. It is the Queen or her delegate, the Governor-General. And some may think, well, this is just a symbolic difference. You know, really, what does the governor general do? Just rubber stamp what parliament brings. But that's not true. There is actual, real, authoritative power that's independent of whomever is in leadership. And we saw this last year, didn't we, within our BC election. So if you remember back um, last spring, we had a, a, a provincial election, and the BC Liberals and the NDP neither of them received enough votes to get a majority. And so the, 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 the BC Liberals, they put in a minority government, they gave their speech from the throne, and then there was a no-confidence vote and the government was dissolved. And so the legislature was dissolved and the, prime, the, the deposed premier went to the lieutenant governor and asked for a new election. But if you recall, the lieutenant governor, the lieutenant governor said no, she allowed for the NDP and the Green uh, coalition to form a new majority government. And so then the, we had a new premier, John Horgan. So this example illustrates a, a real important distinction between government as the seat of authoritative power and leadership as those entrusted with oversight and direction. Now, the question then for us as we consider church governance is within the church, who holds this seat of authoritative power? The scripture is very clear. Our brother read for us from Colossians chapter 1, earlier uh, in the call to worship, and it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This clearly shows the seat of authoritative power of governance for the church is Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 1 repeats again the headship of Christ, that God put everything under his feet and, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. Later on in Ephesians 4, which we just read, it says that Christ gives gifts to his church so that the whole body may grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then later on, as, as, as John told the children, Paul talks about marriage. And he says that marriage is really a picture of Christ and the church. Christ as the head of his church. And, and so the New Testament is very clear. The seat of authoritative power in the church is Christ. He is the head of his church. And the 1689 Baptist Confession summarizes this point very easily and very clearly. Let me read from the Baptist Confession. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested with all supreme and sovereign manner. So this is very clear for us, that Christ is the authoritative head over the church. And so any authority in the church is ultimately derived from Christ's authority. It is Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not Pastor John's church. Ultimately, it's not the congregation's church. It belongs to Christ. It is the church that Christ promised that he will build. It is the church that he purchased with his blood. And that is why church governance is not a small matter. It is not a simple matter of taste or custom or tradition. It's not subject to the latest management fads or pragmatic ideas because how we exercise governance in this church defines how Christ rules in his people on earth. It expresses our submission to his headship over all aspects and details of his church. We're not authorized to tinker with the church that Christ has instituted and that he is building or to deviate from the pattern of government that he has instituted. So our mandate is to um, not make up a government structure that fits our cultural fashions or, or, or uh, dictates, uh, but to obey to the best of our spirit-aided ability the biblical pattern that God, Christ has given us in his word. Now, the question that we may come to then is, well, how does Jesus exercise headship in his church when he's not present on earth? He's, he's ascended into heaven. And the answer is, just, just like the queen does, through a representative. Now, the, the Roman church teaches that the representative of, of Christ is the pope. But the scripture teaches, and Jesus himself taught, that, that his representative, who would come after him, carry on his work, and conduct the building up of the church, is who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the true vicar of Christ. So after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was sent to carry on and carry out the work of building the church of Christ. The Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to write the New Testament as the word of God to his, to his people. So in, this, in the scriptures, we have the mind of Christ. And moreover, through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit is continuing his work of building up the people of God. He regenerates the elect, through the gospel, he guides them into a knowledge of the truth as he applies the word of God to their hearts. And the Holy Spirit works among the people of God to lead them as a whole to recognize what should be believed and what should be done 
in Christ's church. So this is our conviction as a church, that the Holy Spirit is at work in every genuine Christian, equipping them to accomplish what God desires within his body. And so there are, in the, in the New Testament, two kinds of authority in the church. The first authority is the authority to lead. The authority to lead, which is given to a plurality of qualified men as elders in the church. That's the topic we're going to give to next week. Today, we're going to talk about the ultimate authority to govern in key matters of doctrine, selecting leaders, discipline, and membership, which is given to the whole assembled body of the local congregation. So just to summarize, there's two kinds of authority. The authority to lead, given to elders, and the authority to govern in these key matters given to the whole church. And this structure is, is what we refer to as elder-led congregationalism. Elder-led congregationalism. Essentially, it states that elders have been entrusted with the oversight and leading of the church, and they exercise authority as they bring God's word to bear in the decisions and everything that takes place in the church. And, but their role is to provide leadership, not governance, formally. And the final authority or the final court of appeal on earth in these key matters of doctrine, membership, discipline, selecting of leaders is not given to the elders only, but to the whole body of the assembled church. While God has given authority to leaders as shepherds over the flock, it's our conviction that the final say on earth for the governance of a local church is the assembled congregation. This is congregationalism. So just to illustrate how this works out in a practical sense. Remember a few years ago, as our church was reviving, revising its statement of faith, we were, we were going to um, add some language as it dealt with marriage. Because in our statement of faith, it didn't say that marriage is an institution instituted by Christ between a man and a woman. It didn't have that language. And we wanted to put it in because of the way our culture is going. And so the elders prepared the language for the revision. They presented it to the church. And then with prayer, with questions, with much discussion, and even with the church making some changes, requesting some changes, eventually it was ratified by the whole body. The elders didn't come up with this and then unilaterally act, put it in, based on their own authority. They didn't have that authority. It was given to the church to institute this clear and important area of doctrine to, to protect the purity and of the doctrine of the church. The local body of Christians possessed that authority to ultimately judge, to ratify this change in the statement of faith in this important area of doctrine. So congregationalism is a, is a historic position uh, among Baptist churches. Uh, other denominations may say that the, the regional bishop has the final say or the national synod or a session or a conference or a denomination or, um, or some uh, a board of deacons or a board of elders or, or one especially gifted pastor, senior pastor. And so these views have produced myriad types of different church governance structures. If you think about it, all the way from the, the very hierarchical structures in the Anglican Episcopalian churches, you know, where they have a local priest and then a, a bishop and then a cardinal and then an archbishop and uh, all those different levels. Um, or even within our, um, 
uh, brothers in the Presbyterian and Reformed churches where they have uh, a more centralized collective authority in a national or regional synod uh, with governance over multiple congregations. So those different approaches are, differ from our conviction in scripture, which teaches that congregationalism. And some critics of congregationalism may say, well, isn't that just like majority rule? You know, isn't that just a, an embodiment of Western political democratic ideals? Um, and then they, they may say, well, uh, congregational churches are like separatists, you know, lone wolf churches, as if they're the only church in the world. But that's not what congregationalism means. It doesn't mean that as a local church, we don't cooperate with other churches for evangelism or outreach or charitable work or emergency relief or any of these other worthy causes. But congregationalism teaches that this body is the ones that dictate and decide how we will do that. And no one from outside can dictate what our involvement will be. So just as an illustration, as you know, in the afternoons, the Korean uh, Bethel Presbyterian Church uses our church building for their Sunday worship service. They're Presbyterian Church, we're Baptist Church, but we can join hands together and partnership together and cooperate together for the spread of the gospel in Kelowna. Sometimes John and I meet with uh, the Pastor James and we have fellowship with him and uh, pray together. And I know that he's uh, involved to some degree in some of the pastoral ministerials within the, in the city. So this is a mutual cooperation that expands the kingdom of God and strengthens bonds of love. I don't know about you, but I, I've very much enjoyed the times where we've come together as churches to eat fellowship meals together. I mean, like kimchi and all that Korean delicious food is just phenomenal. So congregationalism means that churches can and they should cooperate for the advance of God's kingdom. But each local church sets the final authority within its own local assembly. The other thing that others would say about congregationalism is, well, it's just a committee on a whole. Committee rule over everything. The, 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 the congregation has final authority on everything. But that's not true. Congregationalism doesn't mean that the, the, the whole congregation decides everything from the color to the carpet, to the length of the sermon, to whether or not the pastor is going to grow a mustache. The whole congregation is given authority in only a few key areas. Doctrine, selecting leaders, discipline, and membership. This is the purview of the authority of the local church. So now that we've made this definition of congregationalism, let's examine the scriptural basis for congregational rule in these key areas of doctrine, leaders, discipline, and membership. So firstly, in matters of doctrine, consider, as you will, the, the, the epistles in the New Testament, like Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians, basically all of them, uh, apart from First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, they were all addressed to congregations as a whole to the church in Corinth, to the church in Philippi, to the church in Colossae, etc. They're not addressed to the elders in Corinth. They're not addressed to a body of overseers, to a regional synod, to some kind of extra congregational body. These epistles carry the bedrock foundational doctrine of the church. They spell out what the gospel is, and they are addressed to whole congregations. So even in fundamental matters, like doctrine and what is the gospel, 
The final court of appeal is the congregation, locally assembled as a whole. And, and this is clearly seen in Galatians chapter 1. So if you want to look at these proof texts, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. So here Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to, what, to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul is telling the Galatian church, judge those who preach a different gospel. Even if it's Paul himself or an angel from heaven, their responsibility is to judge and reject those who preach a different gospel. God has entrusted that decision to the congregation as a whole and gave them the responsibility of judging against false teachers. So leaders, of course, have an important role, but ultimately, the blame and the buck stops at the local congregation as a whole. They are the ones that Paul is charging to eject the false teacher from their midst. And we see the same thing kind of in reverse in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, Paul is, is teaching Timothy that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So here, the, the false teachers are not sneaking and getting into the church somehow. They're getting invited. The congregation is inviting them in to, to have what their itching ears want to hear. And Paul is saying that these churches are to blame for, that, for the false teaching. It, it's not only is the false teacher guilty, but the congregation is a party to their guilt for bringing in the false teachers, allowing them to continue preaching and not properly rejecting them as false teachers. The church is culpable. So Paul is saying that each local congregation has final authority to, to preserve the sound doctrine within their assembly. And when that doctrine is corrupted, ultimately it is the local church and their congregation, that congregation that is to be blamed. Why are there so many false teachers prevalent among today's church? Why are those who preach a different gospel still tolerated in churches even within this city? Well, there's so many things we could say, but, but ultimately, the blame falls on the congregation for their lack of discernment and their refusal to exercise their congregational authority over matters of doctrine within their church. Well, how about us? How do we exercise our own congregational authority in this area? How, how do we honor God as a congregation with an understanding that we are the ones that Christ has entrusted final authority to preserve right doctrine in this church? By the mercy and grace of God, we have a faithful pastor who brings the word to God to bear and is faithful. But we should not allow ourselves to be complacent. One by one, we need to be Bereans, searching the scriptures to see whether what John is preaching or I am preaching or anyone who, who fills this pulpit or teaches a Bible study, um, whether what they're saying lines up with the word of God. So train yourself to discern error. Acknowledge that it is your solemn responsibility to safeguard the church against false teaching. If necessary, be bold to exercise your responsibility to confront doctrinal error in the church, always doing so with love, humility, and respect, and only for the core issues of the faith. Do it privately. 
Do it with a submissive and patient spirit. Do it with a recognition that we all have blind spots. And do it with also a recognition that preserving doctrine in the church is not a one-man inquisition, but a congregational responsibility. Secondly, in matters of leadership. Leadership in the church is very closely related to doctrine. What, you know, the leaders that we have will largely judge the kind of doctrine that we're taught. And so, for good or for ill, the leadership has the large influence over the health and the godliness of a congregation. Um, you know, the passage where it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's, that's reality. So whether it's the elders who are paid to work full-time in shepherding or, or whether it's elders who are lay elders, selecting the right elders is an important responsibility of the church. And it's one of the ways that the congregation exercises its responsibility and its authority to safeguard the right doctrine. So let's look at um, Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, verse 28. The word that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders here. So Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He stops in Miletus and he calls for the elders from the Ephesian church to come and meet to him. And this is his last address to these elders. He's going to go and he's going to be put in prison and he's going to be sent to Rome. This is the last chance he has to address these men. And so in verse 28, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Notice how Paul does not say, watch over the flock in which I made you an overseer or in which Timothy made you an overseer. And he doesn't even say in which the congregation made you an overseer. What does he say? Who made these men overseers? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made them overseers. And this is where, what our church believes, that it is not the church or the congregation or the elders that make men elders, but it is the Holy Spirit who makes men elders, giving them the gifts uh, that are required and, and, and enabling them to live up to the qualifications that are mandated. Then what, what role does the church play then? Well, the church's responsibility is to recognize those whom the Holy Spirit has gifted for that service and then to call them and submit to them as leadership in the church. And because the existing elders are charged with oversight, the existing elders must guide the whole process. So even though the, but, but even though the existing elders guide the process, the local church plays a vital role in recognizing those whom the Holy Spirit has gifted and empowered, and then calling and it's submitting to those men as elders in the church. And there's a flip side to that. In the same way, just as the, the local church has authority to um, select leaders, the church has authority to remove men from, from the eldership. Look at 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 to 20, Paul says, Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So if an elder uh, persists in unrepentant sin, uh, they, are to rebuked, they are to be rebuked in the presence of all. So who, who is the all in view in this passage? Well, I believe the all in view here is, is the whole congregation. The all is, is this, the assembled saints. The assembled saints have the authority to, to remove that unrepentant elder from leadership in the church. 
And again, this process is guided by the existing elders, and, and, but it is, it is done as a congregational responsibility to preserve the purity and the holiness of that church. So how do we exercise our authority as a congregation with selecting elders in a God-honoring way? You, you probably notice uh, what, what I'm teaching here is not what we really have in place to the degree that we would want it. So one thing that we can do is pray that God may raise up gifted men who can serve and oversee the work of, of the body. And we're going to talk more about eldership next week. But beyond that, take the time to examine the qualifications that are given in Scripture. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. Look at those things, and we're going to learn about them more next week. And then think, ask yourself, does my, do the leaders in this church, are they characterized by those things? And if so, praise God. Pray for them to remain strong in it. Pray for them and for their families and for their ministry that God may uphold them, that Christ may keep them strong and continue to use them for the preservation of his church. Submit to them, trust them, for they answer to God for the way in which they care for your soul. And if a leader does show an area of weakness, because we are all sinners, prayerfully, respectfully, lovingly, go and address it to that person in private. Don't sow the seeds of division by grumbling or complaining or even talking about it with others. Thirdly, in matters of discipline. Here, we're, we're going to also deal with this more in depth in, in, a in a few weeks. But let's look at Matthew 18, um, just to clear our thinking on this. Matthew 18, 15 to 18. So Jesus is teaching and is teaching his disciples. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is the process, broadly, of, of church discipline. If a brother or a sister sins against us, uh, the Lord is telling us that we need to go to that person and, and we need to uh, try to gain our brother back, call him to repentance. And, and if he or she repents, praise God, we've gained our brother. Uh, if they don't, then take two or three witnesses to enlist the help. And if that person still refuses to the, repent, bring the matter to the church. And if they still refuse to repent, then take it up with a regional synod and then a national conference and then a national assembly. Is that what it says? No. no. It says the local church and then it's not over. It says the local church is the final court. In, in legal terms, it is the final ju judicatory in matters of church discipline. It has authority in heaven to render final earthly judgment on these matters. And that doesn't mean that, that the local church's judgment is infallible. But we, we are not infallible. But nonetheless, Christ has entrusted discipline and the purity of the church to the local church, and the local church is its ultimate and final earthly judge. Paul elaborates on this even more in 1 Corinthians 5. 
So here Paul is instructing in 1 Corinthians 5, the Corinthian church to discipline a man who, who was engaging in gross sexual morality. So in verses 4 and 5, Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So who is he addressing here? Who is Paul telling need, needing to do this? He's not telling the elders, do that. He's saying to the whole church. He says, as you gather, as a whole congregation, as you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the spirit and power of the Lord Jesus is present with you, and my spirit is with you, then act. Discipline this unrepentant man. Paul can't act unilaterally on his own accord. He can't just come in there and do it. Or he can't send someone else to do it. He's calling the church to gather in the power and presence of the Lord Jesus and act. And they must act. They have the authority to act. They had tolerated this man's sin by welcoming him into their fellowship. And now Paul says, you have to act. You have to turn him loose. Turn loose of this man. Or turn loose of your confession to be a biblical church. This passage also reminds us of the vital origin of the local church's power. Because it, it, it says, my, uh, the power of our Lord Jesus. The, the vital origin of the, of the local church's power is the special presence of the Lord Jesus. So how do we exercise, again, this authority to discipline as a church in a God-honoring way? So we're going to, John will be preaching on, disciplining, on discipline in, a, in, in two more weeks. So I'll only mention one thing. This is very important. Along with the congregational authority to conduct discipline in the church comes the congregational responsibility to care for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. It's like the Spider-Man movie. With great power comes great responsibility. We have been entrusted with the responsibility of caring for one another in the church. And this is not an option. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says that as we care for one another in our spiritual lives, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Caring for each other takes many forms. Basically, like, like the girl said, most basic level, we, we pray for one another. We have a church directory. We have the names of one another. We can pray for each other. The ladies, I, I mentioned this before, they have this beautiful texting ministry where they are always aware of what's going on and praying for each other. We can encourage each other in the word of God. We see a brother who's struggling. Um, encourage that person with the word of God. We can repent to one another. Not holding grudges, but forgiving one another in Christ. And lastly, the church exercises authority in matters of membership. So just as the local congregation has the authority to discipline the unrepentant out of the church, the church also has authority to welcome the repentant in to the church. And this is illustrated in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, Paul is, is urging the Corinthian church um, after they had disciplined to welcome the repentant brother back. So let's look at the passage. It says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough 
So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So there was somebody in the church who had sinned and was disciplined by the majority. So this gives us some kind of indication that a vote took place or there was some way in which a greater part of the members of the church said, we don't accept this man's confession. His, his lifestyle is, is causing us to doubt the reality of his salvation. And they disciplined him. Whether it was the same man that, that they were um, referring to in 1 Corinthians 5, we, we don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. Maybe, praise God, the discipline worked and he repented and now Paul is urging the church to welcome that repentant man back. But look at what Paul does in verse 8. He doesn't unilaterally act to welcome the man back. He only exhorts the congregation. Literally, he says, I beg you. Because it's the local congregation as a whole that has the authority to welcome this repentant man to accept his repentance and welcome him back into membership. So this uh, is another uh, way in which we can see the local church has been given a tremendous trust in the, in, the, in the key matter of membership, accepting those who make a clear gospel confession and acknowledging them as ones with whom we fellowship as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Then how do we exercise this authority as a congregation in a God-honoring way? And again, this comes back to the responsibility tied with the authority. Along with our authority to accept members comes our authority to actively engage in the lives of those who are in this church. We have a responsibility one to another. We fulfill this responsibility by obeying all of the one another's in the scripture. Regular attendance is the most basic ministry that we give to one another, and it's meaningful. Hebrews 10, 25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. Beyond just attending, getting to know one another in real, genuine ways, being engaged in one another's lives, taking the initiative to welcome if somebody new comes, using the gifts that God has given us to build up the body. If we have a new member come and, and, and joins himself or herself to the church, taking the initiative to get to know them, to learn about their story, to understand where they are spiritually, to pray for them, to build friendship and relationship with them. Opening up our homes to be hospitality centers for the church. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we, you know, bring out the best china and, you know, some of us don't even have a large enough home to fit, you know, my family in for sure. <laughs> So it doesn't mean that always the same way in the same way, but it, it's a heart. So hospitality could look like a brother calling up another brother over lunch to pray for him and to encourage him in, in, in an area. It could mean a mom inviting another mom to push strollers around and pray for each other and talk about how you are growing in Christ. Accepting believers into membership is not something that we do only as an official authority in a Wednesday members meeting but it is a practical responsibility that is carried out all through the life that we live together within the church. And so let's conclude. Let's go back to the passage we began with in Ephesians 4. So in Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16, Paul is encouraging the believers and teaching them, rather than being tossed to and fro 
by every wind of doctrine. We are to speak the truth in love, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Does, does this understanding of congregational uh, church governance and congregational authority help, help you see this passage in a new light? It's saying that rather than being tossed and fro by every deceitful scheme, the church is to grow up in Christ together as each part is working properly. Christ makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the picture of a healthy congregational church. It's the local body growing up in love, working together to safeguard the doctrine of the church, exercising authority in matters of membership, watching out for one another's spiritual well-being, and recognizing and submitting to godly leadership. Congregationalism, it's not just a, a form of church government, one of many. That's not what it is. It's faithful that is to say, congregationalism is not just a form of church governance. That's, it's not just one of many types of church governance. Take your pick. Congregationalism is faithful church membership played out on a congregational scale. It's not something that happens four Wednesdays a year, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days together as we live life together in the church with whom God has placed us. God has set up this church in such a way that its faithfulness and its health ultimately are safeguarded by the assembled Christians, you and me, who have covenanted to one another and to God that we will build one another up in Christ. When Dana and I were first married, we, we, we lived in Ottawa and we lived um, in this really old apartment building on, um, on Dines Road. John will know where it is. It's a very rough area. Lots of students there, and, and lots of um, crime was there. There was a shooting like 50 feet in front of our front door one time. And, and, and we lived in an apartment building that was a ghastly apartment building from the 70s. It, it had, you know, the unfinished concrete facade outside, and, and it, was, it looked really more like a prison than a home. And the concrete crumbled, the, the fixtures was crumbling, the plumbing was bad, the toilet always plugged up, um, th there were knife fights in the foyer, there was, uh, you know, all kinds of, there was even two people uh, murdered in the, in the front entryway of the apartment. It was a rough. But because we rented, you know, we didn't really care. We just tried to avoid whatever the problems were. And whenever there, you know, the toilet didn't pl uh, flush, we, we just picked up the phone, called the manager, complained. We didn't do anything. We didn't care. It was not our, it was not our house. We, we were just a tenant. But after about 18 months, um, Dana was pregnant. We, we really didn't want to have a baby in that, the, that rundown apartment. So we bought a little townhouse just across the street. So the townhouse was in the same rough neighborhood. It still had old fixtures. It still had like a crumbling concrete step. But we owned it. So we cared about it. So we started fixing it up and we installed a new bathroom and we, uh, in the basement and, and we, we, we put in a new kitchen sink and we painted the walls and whenever the neighbors were having loud parties, we called the police. We were invested in that church. We wanted to make it the best that we could. Why? Because we cared about it. We were owners. We were not tenants. We were owners. Biblical congregational church governance says that as members of the church, 
We are not tenants, but we're owners. We are responsible to God as the final earthly judge in these matters of doctrine, leadership, membership, and discipline at Providence Baptist Church. So if we were tenants and we saw a problem, we would just call the manager and complain. Tenants complain, criticize, grumble, and gossip. But owners see problems and they act. They come together. They encourage one another, build up the body in love, give thanks to God for you being entrusted to me and me being entrusted to you. We work together to ensure the purity of the gospel, the holiness of the church. Can you see the great privilege that God has given us in membership and in congregational governments? We are not just spectators. We're not tenants. We're owners. We're driving the show in some sense in that God has given us authority as a body to preserve the soundness of doctrine, to preserve the holiness of the church as we care for one another spiritually, and to encourage and build up the body as we engage in membership, accepting new members in, and as God, uh, as God provides the opportunity, um, bringing up new, uh, recognizing those whom God has gifted and, and, and calling them and submitting to them as elders. What a tremendous responsibility. What a tremendous privilege God has given us. Then, what role does leadership play in the governance of the church? That brings us to the first part of elder-led congregationalism, elder leadership, which we'll talk about next week. But for now, I hope that you come away with an elevated view of the position of the local church why, why has God trusted so much to us as a congregation? You know, like, look at us. Not many of us are wise by worldly standards. Not many of us, you know, would be qualified in a human sense to preserve the reality of God's church. Why does he do this? It's because by choosing the weak things and the things that are not, God wants to glorify himself. Where the church functions in the way that he designed, when we exercise as a, as, a, as a body our congregational authority in all these various ways to build up the body, then the glory of God's own name is put on display. And it is a God-given occasion to display the glory of Christ as we live together and as we serve him together in holiness and unity and love. That is what this assembly, Providence Baptist Church, is devoted to. Are you? Let's pray.